So again, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke 2. We're going to look at verses 36 to 38. So this is the last of the series that we've been walking through in December, waiting for Jesus. And we've looked at Mary and uh, realizing that when it comes to following Jesus and knowing Jesus, there's a whole lot of waiting that comes with that, waiting for God to show up in our life. And so uh, last week we talked about Simeon who had waited for the consolation or basically the salvation of Israel and for all people. And we talked about what waiting looks like and how waiting isn't just doing nothing and waiting is never wasted. It's always when God is at work. And so this morning we're going to talk about waiting for God's freedom because there's one word that's used in, in verse 38. It's the word redemption. And a literal translation of redemption means freedom, being set free from something that, that binds us. And so this morning we want to talk about that. And so really the, today's message is actually two messages in one. The first part has to do with kind of the waiting but the second part has to do with the culmination of what we're actually waiting for, what God is wanting to do in all of our lives, in all of the world. And so the first part we're going to talk about is, is we're focusing on a, on a woman named Anna, who we'll read about in a moment. But, but one of the things that she experiences, and I think you and I have to understand, is that waiting sometimes means waiting in what we think is silence, which means we're waiting for God to say something and do something, but our perception is, I got nothing. I'm not hearing anything, I'm not feeling anything, I'm not experiencing anything, there's no emotion, I don't feel like God's giving me any direction, so it's silence. And you and I as human beings, we have a default when it comes to silence. When somebody goes silent on us, or we perceive that they've gone silent on us, it's usually never a good thing. You know what I'm talking about? When someone gives you the silent treatment, that's not a good thing. That means something negative or bad has happened, and because of that, they've gone silent on you, they refuse to talk to you, which means either you offended them, or they're angry at you, or something happened that you don't fully understand, but you're not talking to that person anymore. You know what I found it in our lives, that when we don't feel like we're hearing anything from God, and God has gone silent on us, you know what our first, our for, first default is? God's mad at us. God's angry. God's disappointed. And so therefore, he's kind of crossed his arms. He's looking down at the end of, of, his, end of his nose, looking at us, going, boy, you shouldn't have messed up like that. And we think that God has gone silent on us, but God never actually goes silent. We think he does. But I want us to understand that this morning, because the first part of this message really has to do with this concept of silence and how we, how we deal with that. So if you have your Bibles, let me read verse 36 to 38 of Luke chapter 2. So it says this, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel, the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So kind of giving you a backstory. If you've been here the last couple weeks, we've been going through Luke chapter 2. And so now Jesus has got him, come into the temple. He's been born, and Mary and Joseph are now dedicating him and going through the process of circumcision. And, and because of that, Simeon encounters Jesus, and now Anna sees Jesus. And now she's starting to realize this promise that has been promised for literally thousands of years has now come to pass in Jesus. And so now she's waiting for this. But I want us to, to capture what's going on for her. So the context that she's living in, the season of time that, that, that the people are living in, is, is something that you and I don't understand. In fact, it, as historians look back on the season of time, they call it the, the 400 years of silence. And because when you go from Malachi to John the Baptist, there was no kind of appointed spokesperson for the people of God saying, that's the person who we're hearing God through right now. 
There was no one central figure. And so there's this perception that during those 400 or 450 years, it's just depends what the estimate is, that somehow God was not speaking. There's this silence. So this is the perception of people that somehow we don't have a voice from God and then Jesus enters the scene. But I want us to pick up from Anna's experience here something of how she functions in the midst of what's perceived to be silence from God. Look at verse 36. The first thing is this. Waiting in silence means listening in the silence. You're like, how do you listen in the silence? There's nothing to listen to, right? But listen what it says. It says there was a prophetess named Anna. So I'm going to stop right there. That's all we need to hear from that verse. There was a prophetess. What is a prophet or a prophetess? Somebody who, on behalf of God, God speaks to them and they speak to other people. So how is it that God can be silent when somebody is a prophetess? That means God's not silent. That may not may mean for, for God's people for that 400 years, there was not one central person that people would go to and say, you're the prophet. But there were other people that God was definitely speaking to. That means in the middle of the silence of what's perceived for everybody, God is still speaking. Now, I found something that's true in my life. Sometimes the challenge in silence is that I have a tendency before God to not be silent myself. And therefore, in the midst of what I think is his silence, I can't hear his voice. Let me just put it really frank. Sometimes we just need to shut up. Honestly. We are so busy complaining about our circumstances and what we're going through and what God may not be doing. And we go to God all the time and we complain and we give him our laundry list or prayer requests. And we do all these things and we never wait to actually think, maybe God's trying to say something, but I can't, won't give him a word in edgewise, so I can't hear what he's saying. And sometimes that means in our life there has to be intentional times where you just are quiet before God. You don't bring requests. You don't even worship. You just be quiet. And then let God do what God wants to do. Because I think in the midst of our silence, sometimes we just need to be silent and let God speak. So obviously there's this understanding that God is speaking, but people aren't necessarily hearing. And so for me, I, excuse me, I mentioned this before. Every three months, the staff gets one day off. It's not a vacation day, but one day off to take a sabbatical, which means it's not go and run errands that you didn't catch up on over the weekend or whatever. It's a day just to go be by yourself with God with no agenda. Just go and be alone with God. And I take that seriously. And so every three months, I'll schedule a day where I'll just go away. And I usually end up going to the beach because that's a place I could just be at peace. And so I did it about three weeks ago. And I went and, and I, I have to fight kind of turning my brain off and just being at peace because, you know, there's a million things going on. But when I set foot on the beach, there's a beach in Oxnard that I go to all the time. It's like I just take a deep breath and I'm just quiet. I might listen to worship music. I might just sit and watch the ocean. And I've learned if I will be quiet long enough, God will start to speak. And I, it's what's hard too is when you come to a moment of silence with an agenda and you say, God, you're supposed to speak this. Usually it doesn't work. But this happened three weeks ago. So I'm like, okay, lay down the agenda, lay down the agenda, just sit, just be with God. Just let God do what he wants to do. And so at that time, about three or four days before, kind of give you a backstory, I had watched um, a report on the news about what's been more and more about what's been happening in Syria and the tragedy of what's happened because of one man and his dominant of a nation. So President Assad, who is the, still the president and the leader of Syria, has wreaked so much havoc on his own people. As I was watching this news report, it broke my heart. I mean, this is a man who literally gassed his own people. And then when they went to the hospitals for safety, they waited till the hospitals filled, and then they bombed the hospitals. 
Over 400 doctors and medical personnel have been lost in hospitals because after an attack by the government, they wait for the hospitals to fill, and then the army comes back and bombs the hospitals. That is pure evil. And I remember after I watched it, I'm like, honestly, God, this is not right. This can't be happening. That kind of evil in the world. And I was angry. And so I was feeling this emotion about this man who, honestly, I'll be honest, I hate that he would do this to innocent people. And so as I, I'm feeling that tension for three or four days, just praying and writing in my journal like God, and so I just let that rest. And so then I'm sitting on the beach, and out of the blue, God reminds me of Romans 5, where, where Paul says this. He says, where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and then God started taking me down this road. He said, you know that man, President Assad, that you hate so much? That you know his sin is great, but my grace is greater. I'm like, no, 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 that can't be fair. I mean, your grace applies to me. I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. And God's like, no, no, no. Every time he bombs a hospital, that is a great evil on humanity. That's great sin. But my grace is beyond that. My grace is greater than that. And God said, I can forgive even him. So then there was real silence on my part. <laughs> how big your grace is now i came into that that day having no agenda because i didn't know what i i'm like god say what you're going to say now what i just heard is not specific to the message but what i heard is the fact that i actually heard something in the silence because i was quiet enough for god to say this is what you need to hear right now because i know this is causing turmoil in your life when was the last time you were just quiet you're like oh pastor john you don't know my schedule i can't slow down yes you can because we always have time for what we value and if we value something, we'll make time in our life. Second thing, look at verse 37. Waiting in the silence also means that you and I learn to press into the silence instead of retreating from it. This is, listen about what it says of Anna. It says, then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple. If you read that earlier, she was married for seven years. Her husband died. And so we don't know the time frame of when she got married. We don't know, but Obviously, she's 84 years old. She's in the temple. She's in, in fact, let's just be honest. If you've been married for seven years and your spouse dies, that's usually not a good thing. But how did she react to that? Did she run from God? Did she blame God? Did she get angry at God? Did she distance herself from God in the temple? No, it says from that point forward, she finds herself in the temple. What's the temple to, to Jews? The temple is the presence of God. Wouldn't you want to run from the presence of God if you've lost your spouse in an, uh, what you would perceive as an unfair manner and now you're left as a widow, especially in that day and age? But what does she do? She presses into the silence and she finds herself in the presence of God all the time. Think about it in our lives. You and I have, can think of probably multiple things in our life where bad things have happened. And we think the bad thing is God going silent on us. It's like, God, I prayed for this and you let it happen. It's not supposed to happen. I prayed against that happening and then you let it happen. You must not be hearing me or you're incapable of answering my prayers and so you've gone silent on me. We don't say that, but all of us have thought that about God. So we get frustrated. What if we looked at it differently? What if we pressed into the silence? What if we actually leaned into what God is doing? The book of Job, if you've ever read that, hard read. Because you and I don't come away with a lot of great answers. Pretty much after Job loses everything, he loses his family and his wealth, and then, then he has his wonderful friends, and no, no offense, and his wife, who doesn't help him at all. She tells him to curse God and die. What a great support that is. But at the end, pretty much when Job is cried out to God, pretty much God says, Job, you know what? 
I love you, but you're nothing. You weren't here at the foundation of the world. You weren't here at creation. Yes, I love you, but you don't know all of what's going on. And, and so the resolve is God does restore Job, but he doesn't get the answers he's looking for necessarily. But this is what's crazy. In the midst of what would be perceived as absolute silence, can you imagine losing your entire family and your wealth and your favor and everything that defined you as a human being? And yet listen to what Job says in the midst of all this. Job 19, verse 25 to 26. He says this, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh, I will see God. I don't know anybody that I've ever known that has gone through what Job went through, but for Job to be able to say that in the midst of what? Silence. Seems like God's taken away everything. That's because Job had a deep understanding of who God is, that God hadn't gone silent on him, that God somehow was at work, even though he didn't understand what God was up to. But he leaned into that. Why is that important? Because I think in the silence, in the difficulties of our life, is when God's doing his greatest work in us. Listen to what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that we, uh, they help us develop perseverance, or excuse me, endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. What is Paul saying? When tough stuff happens, God is developing and working in you. When you think that God has gone silent, he's still at work in you. Anna knew that. She knew that even though she went through a difficult time in her life, God was still God, and she could lean into that. So pressing in the silence. And the third thing is this. Not only pressing in, but the second part of verse 37, seek in the silence. So what is Anna doing in the temple? It says she's worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. It's crazy. I mean, she's lost her husband, and now she finds herself in the temple, and night and day for years and years and years, she's pressing in, and she's seeking God, and she's wanting to see God break through her life, so she's fasting and praying constantly. What is she doing? She's seeking after God, who would we would, from the outside, would say has gone silent on her. It's not that God is playing hide-and-seek. God doesn't play games like that. But there's something in her that is pressing just beyond leaning into to actually seeking after God to discover what God is doing. That means there's a proactive approach to the fact that God has seemingly gone silent on her, that she's going to press in because she knows the nature of God in such a way that as she fasts and prays, she's convinced that she's going to encounter who God is. She's going to experience the presence of God. Now think about that for us. When God goes silent, you and I don't want to fast and pray and worship. Come on. We want to get mad. We're going to go, God, you're not fair. But what if in the midst of that, we just pressed in a little bit harder? Maybe we started to seek after what God may be doing in our lives and see what that looks like. So we have to go look for God. It's not that God's trying to hide, but there's something about the posture of our life being about finding what God is doing, seeking after him, which means you go after it. There's something about that that changes us and the way that we understand God. Again, God's not running from us, but there's something about a proactive pr approach that I am leaning in, I am pursuing, I am looking for God in my life. Because there's something about the journey that gets us there that changes us and transforms us. There was a tradition that my, my parents started and I carried on to, to our family. We've done, in fact, uh, for this year we may not do it. I'm sure Courtney and Jordan are going to be upset with me when I say this, but 
from the time that Courtney and Jordan were like old enough to be aware of what Christmas was, we, we always had this tradition. So we always hang stockings, you know, over the fireplace, but when they come down on Christmas morning, the stockings are gone because they've been hidden. They've been filled and then they've been hidden. And what's over the mantle, on the mantle over the fireplace now are clues. And so when they come down, they open an envelope or they look and there's a clue that leads them on a hunt that eventually they will find their stocking. And sometimes it's a poem and sometimes it's word stuff and sometimes it's a clue that leads to a clue and it's all kind of crazy stuff. But it requires them not to just walk down the stairs and look at the fireplace and grab their stocking and say, oh, thanks, mom and dad, or Santa, whatever you want to say. But they actually have to now do something proactively to find where their stockings are. And they've loved that. Not one year did they come and look at the fireplace and go, oh, I wish you would have just left my stocking there for me to find. In fact, I know they're going to be mad at me because they're going to Dad, I know we're 21 and 19, but you still should be hiding our stockings. <laughs> I know, it's time to grow up, right? But there's something about the seeking that I think sometimes you and I, whether we know it or not, we actually need that. There has to be something about pursuing God and what he's doing. And that means fasting and praying and praying and leaning in and seeking after God and not giving up when you think God has gone silent on you. Why is all this so important? Let me read verse 38 again because this is so important. Listen to what it says. And coming up at the very, uh, very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, which is the redemption of Israel, which ultimately we know from what Simeon said last week too, that this is the redemption of all people. What is redemption? It's freedom. Israel had been waiting for freedom and they knew through Jesus freedom would come. And so when she says this and she's sharing this with people, this is the promise they've been working at and looking for and wanting to happen. And why is this important? Because the last part of this message, again, this is two messages in one, is this question, what is God really up to? What is, what is Christmas really about? Now, this is going to be some broad categories, but I want you to understand this is what God is up to through Jesus. This is what he's doing for us. This is what he's doing for humanity. This is what people are, were starting to understand when, they, when she said the redemption of Israel, the freedom of God's people. What is God in the process of freeing us from? What does freedom look like? Three things. It's, the first is this. God is up to, and what he's really working at, and what we're actually waiting for, is he's setting us free from the power of sin. Now hear me, if you've been in church for a while, you're like, I got that one, this is generic, let's get specific. No, 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 let's get generic for a moment. God is freeing us from the power of sin. What does that mean in our life? Listen to what Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. He says, in him, talking of Jesus, we have redemption, or freedom, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through Jesus, we have what? Freedom from sin. Why is freedom from sin so important? Because sin will cost you everything. And here's the thing that sometimes we miss, because we do always, not al always, but most of the time, we always default on the side of grace. We do. In fact, in the body of Christ, we go through these seasons where it's like goes back and forth and back and forth. It's like law, grace, law. We're in a grace period right now in the church. I watched it. But sometimes we swing to so far this way. What we do is, Sin is no longer a big deal to us. Why? Because I'm forgiven. And no one's supposed to judge me, you know, because I'm, I'm just like anybody else, and Jesus says not to judge. And so sin really is, it's a big deal, but it's not really a big deal because Jesus died on the cross, he's covered my sin, I'm forgiven, and so I don't need to be feel, feel judgment or condemnation, condemnation. I live under grace. All true. Except when you and I start to think that sin is not a big deal. Sin is a huge deal. Every sin is a huge deal. 
from the thought that you have of being dishonest to something extreme as murder or adultery or whatever it might be, it's a huge deal. Now, not a huge deal so that you and I walk away thinking, oh man, I really I feel like horrible about myself. No, it's a huge deal. Why? Because your sin and my sin is a huge deal to God. That's what Christmas is about. It's about our sin problem. It's about that the fact that you and I, apart from Jesus breaking into the world and becoming human and living a perfect life to show us what life's supposed to look like and then dying on the cross and rising from the dead, you and I are stuck. And we are stuck in sin that will dominate us and control us our entire life. And then it'll end not well for any of us because if we still die with, die with sin on our account, then eternity will be even more horrific than this life. But Jesus came to free us from our sin. It's a huge deal. And that's why you and I have to take it as a huge deal. When we fail, we have to be accountable for that. And we have to ask for forgiveness and we have to repent in turn. Why? Because it's a serious issue. Let's put it in this context. Some in this room know this firsthand, what this is like. Let's say you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have cancer. And there's a treatment that I can give to you that will cure you. But no insurance company is going to cover it. And it's going to cost you millions of dollars. And you don't have that. So you're stuck. You're like, I could do a GoFundMe page. Sorry, GoFundMe is not going to get enough money for you. So you're like, I know that there's a treatment that's going to cure me. But I can't pay for it. Even if I sell all of my possessions, I can't afford the treatment. So what are you stuck with? You're stuck with death. Because that cancer's in you, and the longer it's in you, the more it's going to control you, and the more it's going to dominate you, and the more it's going to kill off what's inside of you until eventually you will die. Then somebody comes along and gives every single cent that they have to the point where they have nothing left and can't recover anything that they have, but they give it over to you and pay for your treatment so that you can be cured. You would say, that's a huge deal. A cancer diagnosis is a huge deal. Cancer can take your body, but sin can take your soul. It's a huge deal. But that's why Christmas is so amazing, that Jesus came to deal with our sin issue, to set us free, which means if I walk into this place this morning and I am dealing with sin in my life, which is all of us, by the way, there's a chance at freedom. That means I don't have to be addicted anymore to a substance. That means I don't have to be addicted to relationships anymore. It doesn't mean I have to keep living in the same life that I've lived. Why? Because I can confess those sins. I can bring them into the light and let Jesus bring what he did on the cross to bear on my life that he will take those sins away and allow me to be free. This is God's plan. He's bringing Jesus into the world. He's going to set the world free from sin, which would keep us away from him. Second thing. And that is this, God is up to setting you free from the power of the enemy. So listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Of Jesus, it says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. There's that word again. It's that freedom from what? For, for forgiveness of sin. So what's going on? This is one of the things that you and I don't have a tendency to talk about a lot. We know that there's sin issues, and we know that we're broken, and we're humans, and we deal with that. But you know that there's an enemy of our soul that wants to destroy anything that God wants to do in our life? And he has been working against humanity from the beginning of time. And it's not that Satan's hiding behind every bush, and every bad thought or every sin that you have ever done in, the, in your life is the devil's fault. That's the extreme. But there is a reality that there is designs on your life to destroy everything that God wants to do. That's why actually the Bible says Jesus came to do what? To destroy the work of the enemy who is at work in the world today and at work in our lives. 
And you and I need to understand, we need freedom from that because there's subtle things that happen in our life that allow the enemy to infiltrate things that God is up to in our life so he can bring his destructive power to bear on us. And so we have to understand there is a real reality of a spiritual world that we sometimes forget because all we see is physical, tangible, but there's a reality that behind that, the enemy is at work trying to thwart everything that God is doing in our life. He wants to wreak havoc. But here's the reality. Satan has already been defeated. It happened on the cross. When Jesus says, it is finished, it was done. So you're like, well, wait a second. If he's defeated, then how come he's still working? Because he's in the process of dying. He's not dead yet. He hasn't been cast, what the Bible tells us in, in Revelation, into the lake of fire where he, for eternity. That There's some things that happen before that's going to occur. So he still is able to function even though he's been defeated. What does that look like? So there's a story I've heard a number of times of a missionary who they were sharing of, of an experience they had when they were in the mission field. They were living in, in some remote area, and, and, uh, and they were in their, in their home, or their what uh, at the time probably was some kind of a hut. They discovered that uh, a large snake had gotten into their hut, and so they got out in a hurry. Because they're like, uh, we don't need to. So one of the locals came up and said, well, I know how to deal with this snake. And they're like, well, you go in, and you do what you need to do, because we don't know what to do. So he went in, and he took a huge machete, and he was able to get close enough to the snake that he cut the snake's head off. But this is a large constrictor, a large snake. And there's something happens when you cut the head of a snake off. Sometimes it takes a while for the body to figure out it's dead. And so he cut the head off, and then he ran out of the house as well because what was going to happen in the next few moments is that the body was still figuring out it was in the process of dying, but it didn't know it was dead yet. And he said this large snake was a constrictor, literally started to thrash all over the house and destroy almost everything inside. And they stood outside, and they're listening things, falling apart and crashing all over the place. And they're like, didn't you kill the snake? He said, yeah, I chopped the head off, but it's still in the process of dying. And he said, wait until things calm down, and then you can go back in. Jesus at the cross severed the head of Satan. He crushed his head. That's actually what the Bible says. And Satan is now in the process of dying. But in the process of dying, he can wreak havoc on our lives. And that's why you and I have to be careful that we don't allow an open door for the enemy to come in. You know, Paul talks about in Ephesians, not to let the devil get a foothold. You know, there's a lot of ways that the enemy does that. It's through our sin and our decisions. You know how he does it in the church? He does it through personal offense. I've watched that happen. When you and I go down and let the sun go down on a wrath, which is that same passage, when we're angry towards people and we don't deal with it and we gossip about them and we divide over them and we don't deal with what Jesus said, when you get offended, you're supposed to do what? You're supposed to go to the person. The enemy loves that because he listens as the church destroys itself because we don't deal with things the way Jesus called us to deal with them. There's an enemy of our soul and Jesus came, what, to defeat the enemy and he's already defeated them but he's in the process of dying and you don't need to be aware of that but that means that the enemy has no power over us, only the power we give him because Jesus has taken all power and authority from the devil but we have to walk in that power and authority in our lives and then the final reality is this. The last thing is that what God is really up to is setting you and I free from the power of death. So Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Jesus took our sin, 
that would cost us our life and nailed it to the cross. Why is that significant? Because sin is the disease that leads to death. And if sin is a part of our lives, it will lead to death. What is death? See, our definition of death needs to be unpacked a little bit. Our, our understanding of death is the end of our physical life. That's not the worst part of death. See, you and I all understand, we understand what the sting of death is. The sting of death is not necessarily the physical dying. It's the separation that follows. If you've lost a loved one, you know what it feels like to lose somebody that you love, and now you're separated from them. That's the sting of death. And with sin as part of the equation in our life, then what happens if, if that, at our death, our physical death, we have not turned to Jesus and asked for forgiveness and received his grace and his mercy through the cross and given our lives to him, then our sin still resides on us. And so we still have cancer. And so because of that, we die what? And we die in separation from God. And that's what hell is. The worst part of hell is we always think of the torment. Well, what's torment? Torment is when you knew you could have been with the God of the universe forever. But because you chose not to embrace him and do it your own way, you took your sin to end, into your grave with you, and now for the rest of eternity, you realize you are now apart from God. And there's no way to reverse that. But the beauty is that Jesus has taken care of that issue. See, God created us. Danny mentioned it earlier about going back to the garden. God created us to be like Adam and Eve where we could be in face-to-face relationship with him so we could understand what it meant to be alive. Adam and Eve were alive. And then when sin entered the equation, death started the process, the dying process. God wants to restore us back to that so that what, when you die physically and sin is no longer a part of your equation in life because Jesus has lifted it off of you, now you spend eternity to what? With God. That means death has lost its sting. Because as someone who knows Jesus, death is a passage way into eternity, not the end of all things. And if you and I have that perspective, it changes the way we live our life. Because there is this reality. Two things. For those who go before us and knew Jesus, death is a reunion. Sometime in eternity, because when we die, the Bible says we go to the presence of the Lord. I don't know if we go and see our loved ones right away, or if that's after the resurrection, where now we all get our, our, our glorified bodies. But I don't know. I know one thing's for sure. Heaven's going to be one huge reunion. Secondly, more important than reuniting, reuniting with people that we love, so we're going to be with God. They're going to have the capacity to be in God's presence in the fullness of our bodies that he created forever where there is no mourning or death or sorrow or pain. Why? Because all of that is gone. And we're free to be with him. We're free to experience why he created us. But you and I understand that God wants to free us from the sting of death. Separation. Separation is hard. I've lost family members, and that's hard, but but recently, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that brought the greatest kind of sorrow in my life, and right now, I'm not feeling that sorrow, is that Courtney went away to college in Oregon. And she's back now. Where'd she go? She's gone. All right, she's gone again. She was in the service, and now she's just, she's like, Dad, I'm tired of hearing you preach. I've heard it enough. I'm out of here. She's having coffee with a friend. I don't know. She's mad about the stockings. I'll take that out of second service. You're right. But I'll tell you, when we dropped off Courtney four months ago in Oregon, I usually can hold my emotion really well. And I did in the moment, but I watched Jordan cry, and I watched Kim cry, and then I watched Courtney cry because they're crying, and I started to cry. But you know what? It hit me. We got in the car after we dropped Courtney off, and we drove down to Medford, which is about four hours. We got into the hotel, and then we were going to make the rest of the trek home. 
down to see me. And I remember I got in the hotel and I lost it. And I remember looking at him like, what's wrong with me? We already said goodbye to her. And it hit me like she's now four, at least four hours away. Tomorrow she's going to be 16 hours away. And I just started sobbing because I had missed my girl. And I thought, you know, Jesus died on the cross so I don't ever have to feel that pain for eternity. I don't have to miss my girl. I don't have to miss Jesus. I get to be with God forever. Why? Because death has lost its sting. I no longer have to worry about separation, which is a motivating factor for everyone that you love that needs to know Jesus. You and I can't waste time. In love for them, we have to press in so that they might discover the freedom that God brings because this is what the Bible says about separation. Oh, great words. Paul again. Romans 8, verse 35 and then 37 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither, here it is, death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and here it is, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, nothing has the power to separate us. Jesus possesses the power to reunite us with God. That's incredible. So what is God up to at Christmas? Why all this waiting? Why all this silence? What is God doing? He's setting us free. He wants us to be free from the power of sin. He wants us to be free from the power of the enemy in our lives. Why? Because ultimately, he wants us to be free from what? The power and the sting of death. So that when we live in this physical life, you and I don't fear physical death. Why? Because it has no power over us. Because although we will momentarily miss those we love if they know Jesus... But in reality, what we'll know, remember Paul had this tension where he said, listen, if I die, I'm going to go be with God, which is a really good thing. But then he actually says to a group of people, but for your sake, I'm going to hang around a little longer. I don't know how he could make that decision. But he's getting, he's talking between life and death. And he's acting, acting as though it's like going to sleep one night and waking up the next morning like it's no big deal. How could Paul have that capacity? Because he knew that, that death had lost its sting. That death was actually, he said these words, gain. It's better. How could death be better than this life? It will be. Why? Because sting no, or power, death has no power over us anymore because Jesus says free. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come and, and join me. We're going to sing one last song as we conclude. But as we do that, I, I want to take just a moment this morning to give an opportunity, in which we'll do next week at our candlelight services. Well, I'm going to ask you, as I do many times, just to close your eyes. And again, you're like, oh, Pastor John wants him to close their eyes so he doesn't, they don't, you don't see the worship team coming up here. Ah, you could see the worship team if you want. That doesn't matter. I'm asking you to close your eyes because there's something about us not being distracted about the things that we see around us that helps us to really dial in on what Jesus may be saying to us today. And that I, I really feel it's important that, that the culmination of the series, the culmination of Christmas is that God has gone to the greatest lengths to capture our attention, our hearts, our minds, our lives again through what Jesus has done. And there's a tendency for us, if you've 
either been in the church for a while or maybe just even celebrated Christmas every year that, that, that we have traditions and traditions are great, but sometimes traditions become things that just re- that cause us to kind of kick into autopilot and we don't really think about what we're doing. We just do it because we've always done it. And somewhere down the line, the tradition has lost the life that originally was ta- attached to it. And then we become religious and we forget. What I want to respond to in just a moment is this two things maybe you've lost the passion of what it means to know Jesus and experience the full joy of Christmas and all of what God has done for you and today God is saying through the waiting and the silence I'm reminding you again how good the good news is of who Jesus is how good he is to you and how he wants to set you free and then then there's others that maybe in your life this moment has come about because God is saying to you and you're feeling this even though maybe it comes through a series or a season of silence in your life God is pulling on your heart right now and saying today is the day that I am asking you and I am drawing you in and now you've discovered what I'm about and I'm asking you to surrender your life to me Jesus his birth his life his death his resurrection, all of that gives him the authority over your brokenness and your sin and the enemy and death. And in a life that chooses to follow him, you have peace and confidence that you can be free from all those things. But it requires one thing of you. Jesus says, if you really want to know life, you have to be willing to give up yours. You have to be willing to sacrifice what you think life's supposed to look like in order to embrace him. And in that, you confess your sin, you give your brokenness over to him, and then you watch his transforming work of forgiveness come to bear in your life. If that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you as we sing this song, that you would just begin to use the words that you know you have in your heart and your mind about telling God, saying, Jesus, today's the day I'm going to turn my life over to you. I'm going to surrender to you today. I'm going to give all of who I am, not worrying about what other people will think or about what that looks like, but just knowing today, Jesus, I am surrendering everything to you. I'm going to pray in a moment, but I'm going to ask you if that's you and you will do that during this next song, that when the service is over, would you come and and just come talk to me? I'm going to stay up front. I'd love to just pray with you about what it means to take that step of surrender, to follow Jesus, to give your life fully to him. So Jesus, would you come and remind us again what all this waiting and silence has been about, that you are here to set us free. And when we experience the freedom that you bring, we experience life. We experience your presence. Lord, for those who maybe for the first time we experience the life that you've brought to us as we surrender our lives to you today. Would you come by your presence, Jesus? Amen.